You're listening to the Current Reality Podcast, where we talk about staying anchored in biblical reality within the current of modern culture. I am Michael Clary, and with me is Wade Thomas, and we are on staff at Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which makes this podcast possible. We'd love to hear from you. If you would like to send us some feedback or ask a question, you can reach us at currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. And whenever we get these, we'll try to answer questions during some of our episodes. Uh, Coming up later on this month, a few announcements here. Uh, I'll be speaking at the County Before Country Conference in Batavia, Ohio, uh, which is pretty close to Cincinnati. It's, um, you know, on the outskirts of town, about half an hour away. But the the I'll be speaking there. My talk is planting churches with spines. Vertebrate vertebrate churches. Planting vertebrate churches. That that would be more scientific, I would say. Okay. Yeah, Uh, stick with your title. Your title is better. Planting churches with spines, yeah. It's going to be fire. Um, My mom will will probably tell me so. Uh, so How many fire emojis? Oh, three. At least three fire emojis, no doubt. No doubt. And then probably a heart and an I love you at the end. I didn't know the fire emoji was good until like a year ago. Like I didn't, I didn't realize that's people were putting that in response to things saying, this is, this is, you got to see this. I kind of thought it was like, this is a dumpster fire. Yeah. Burn it down. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to be there. Wade will be there. Some friends of ours from church will be there. And if you're going to be there, I would love to meet you in person. So come by and say hello. Um, I'd love to say hi and um, do us a favor. Uh, We, we really would love you to leave a review. I think there's 18 reviews uh, on our. uh, 18,000. 18,000, but right. pardon me. 18, as yeah. though we were some small rinky-dink podcast. Yeah, we're definitely not a small right. podcast. We are... Correct. I mean, this podcast is fire. It is. From what I've heard. Threefold fire. Threefold fire. That, like, sound, that yeah. sounds like a Christian heavy metal band. It probably... It, if it's not, it should be. Yeah. Well, leave us a review. It's simple to do. If you have an iPhone especially, just go to the podcast app, open our podcast, scroll all the way down, and then... Um, Past the current eighteen thousand reviews. Yeah, past. No, well, it, it it's just the episodes. Okay. So give you okay. a handful of episodes, then the thing to leave a review is at the bottom of that. Um, hit that five star, uh, five stars, and then you know write some very eloquent, poetic, beautiful, uh, effusive, flattering uh, compliment for the podcast. That Correct. would mean a lot. Um, I do want to read uh, here. Here's a one review we got from a guy named Mike Becker. I've never met Mike. Um, but, Mike, I've interacted with you on Twitter. appreciate what you uh, had to say. X. What? It's called X now. Twitter's called, called X now? Yeah, it's called X. It's not called <laughs> Twitter anymore. I mean, I, I think it's cool that it's – I mean, X is cool, I guess. But it, there's a whole verbiage yes. around how you talk about Correct. it that's really awkward now. So, yes, to actually – Quick thing I didn't tell you. Somebody came over for dinner. A couple came over for dinner from our church like a week ago. And I was telling them about how somebody had visited church because of something you tweeted. And I said, yeah, somebody came to church because of Michael's ex. (laughs) And they thought I meant for a second like an ex-girlfriend of yours. Or an ex-wife. Right. It's like Michael has a dark past. I was like, no, I mean like his his Twitter. I'm trying to use it. So, yeah, it doesn't work as well. I mean, yeah, it's like – I think it's called post now, but yeah. I mean, I guess you post or repost. Uh, okay. Let's just call it Twitter and tweet. Yeah, yeah but, but I've always thought tweet was such, I just thought, thought tweet and Twitter were just dumb sounding words for something that should be like a serious platform or is meant to be a serious platform. Yeah. And it's like, well, I'm going to tweet something. Tweet, tweet. And I'm like, that just, <laughs> that just yeah, seems really goofy. Yeah. 
Oh, well. All right. Here's what Mike Becker wrote. Uh, this podcast is perfectly summarized in a quote from Michael Clary's God's Good Design book. Which which panel in the comic book is this quote from? Um, it's uh, well, there's this one panel where the Dark Lord emerges okay. from the dungeon. That's and a great one. It's it's right here. That's that's a great one. It says uh, so. Here's a quote from my book. Some truths are so beautiful and profound that they awaken within us a longing for God and eternity. Close quote. The topics and the way they're handled are such an invigorating and eye-opening breath of fresh air, stirs the soul to want to live a distinctly Christ-honoring life in a world where biblical truth and beauty, with respect to sexuality and gender, are being eviscerated, sadly even within many churches. True words, Mike. Appreciate what you wrote there. Um, That means a lot. So thank you for that review. And please, other folks, uh, go leave us a review. We'd appreciate it. Um, One other announcement. King's Domain Conference. We did one already. This is the second one. We might even say second annual if the Lord uh, Lord prospers the ministry. Um, This is going to be April 18 through 20. So mark your calendar, 2024. The topic is gendered virtue, men and women who take dominion. And uh, I am I am really jazzed about the speaker lineup, um, and I, I can't wait to meet all these guys. Uh, most of them I've never met in person before. LeBron James. LeBron James. Yes. Kyrie Irving is going to give us a awesome. flat Earth message. Right. Um, yeah. The whole basically all of the Cavs, the the old you know Warriors Cavs. Zadrunas Ogalskis yeah. will be there. Mark Price. Kevin Love. It's going to yeah. be great. Delonte West. <laughs> That's digging way, way back into the archive there. NBA, people who don't watch the NBA are like, what are these guys talking about right now? Yeah. I, okay. All right. So here's the speaker lineup. Um, Toby Sumter, Michael Foster, Shane Morris. Online, uh, see, he has his first initial, initial G, Shane Morris, mm-hmm. Shane Morris, Joe Rigney, Matt McBee, and Michael Clary. That's awesome. Those guys are great. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. All right, so today our topic is all about white privilege. So white privilege, mm-hmm. the the poison of our minds to think this way. So wait, I'll kick it over to you to get us going. What you got for us today? Yeah, okay. So um, let me start with, I guess, just uh, I'm going to give one obvious thing, uh, or at least it's obvious to Michael and I, just for the sake of our audience who may or may not know us as well. Racism, like, is an actual thing. There is racial hatred that is sinful that still exists in the United States and in the world at large. So we're not because we believe the white privilege mindset is poison. It's relational acid. That's the argument we're going to make, and we're going to try to demonstrate it. Uh, but we we don't want you to we don't want anybody to hear us saying that basically like racism doesn't exist at all. Right. Um, that could be the caricature that somebody would walk away with if we weren't careful. So, but let me give you a few, if I can, a few um, examples of where this mindset of white privilege has infested um, Christian or the wider culture uh, in the United States. Uh, the first one I'm going to give you is in 2016, the United Methodist Church, which is one of the largest Protestant denominations in America, it's got about six million, I think five and a half, six million people. Uh, in American churches, it's got 10 plus million the world over. So it's a big denomination. Uh, they, in 2016, adopted this resolution, resolution number 3376. It's, we'll link to it in the show notes. It's on their website. You can get it easily. But it, it says some pretty, uh, I think, obnoxious things uh, as though they just are absolutely true. 
and they're problematic. Uh, so let me let me give you a few. Towards the end of the resolution, the United Methodist Church uh, says, we suggest that the church focus not only on the plight of people living in urban or rural ghettos, but also on white privilege and its impact on white persons. For example, churches in white or predominantly white communities need to ask why there are no persons of color in their community, why the prison population in their state is disproportionately black and Hispanic persons, why there are so few black and Hispanic persons in high paying jobs and prestigious universities, why schools in white communities receive more than their fair share of education dollars, and why white persons receive preferential treatment from white police officers. They're advocating for churches to ask these questions. Hmm. And they're not merely questions. Baked into the question is the assumption that something immoral has happened. Right. Some racism has been committed that has led to these things. And so the church is almost rhetorically asking these questions. They're not literally saying, you should ask these questions, because who knows? Yeah, it <laughs> could be anything. You're not asking questions from a point of view of curiosity. Right. These right. are questions that are damning to you. Right, it's exactly. Like, this is the kind of question, how dare you? Right. <laughs> it's, That's, like, it's like, hmm, I don't know. Let me think. How, yeah. how dare I? Well, <laughs> exactly. Uh, just, just a few more sentences from it. We ask the General Conference to recognize white privilege as an underlying cause of injustice in our society, including our church, and to commit the church to its white privileges elimination in church and society. So they're asking the church, the denomination as a whole, to commit itself to the, the elimination of this great evil that it's calling white privilege. Um, we ask each local church with a predominantly white membership, one, to reflect on its own willingness to welcome persons without regard to race and to assess the relative accessibility in housing, employment, education, and recreation in its community to white persons and to persons of color. I just, can, can I just, yeah. I, I'm, I'm reading along with this with you. All that you just said is like the first, is like point one. Right. Um, and the first half of it yes. uh, is like to reflect on its own willingness to welcome persons without regard to race. Totally fine. Yeah, I'm like, totally good. And, and I, when I read this, so when I, as you're reading that, I was like, okay, so far so good. And then it just kept going. Right, exactly. So it it's links not, these. It's not merely welcoming people. It is all like welcoming people is equated with um, assess relative accessibility in housing, employment, education, recreation in the community. And I'm like, well. We have direct control over exactly. welcoming people into our churches. We we have degrees of control. In some cases, we have zero control over these other areas. Um, and so it's just, it, it's Correct. an interesting thing to just kind of lump them all together as though they're one and the same. That's exactly the same thought I had. So you're going to take it's – it's almost as though they're like, listen, church, I want you to do this one thing for me, okay? Can you do this one thing for me, United Methodist Church? I want you to ask – is your church welcoming to black people? And why aren't there more white people in prison? <laughs> right. Wait a minute. Well, <laughs> that's not one thing. <laughs> Those are two totally right. different things. Exactly. Uh, and two, to welcome persons of color into membership and full participation in the church and community and to advocate for their access to the benefits which white persons take for granted. Hmm. So again, sort of the same thing here. Number two, the first part, welcome persons of color into membership. Absolutely. If you're a Christian yeah. and you want to be a part of this church, you should be a part of this church. And if, we're, if, if we are doing something 
immoral, sinful, unethical to make it hard for you to be part of this church, yeah. we should repent. That is exactly what Galatians 3.28 is about. It's, right. So that first part is great. And and so you're going to get probably a lot of like older, sweet Methodist people who read the first part of that and they're like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. And then kind of miss that at towards the end, advocate for their access to the benefits which white persons take for granted. Well, what, what exactly? What are those? Yes. Uh, it, it, it is... It assumes it's this golden treasure that every white person keeps right. in their house locked up. It says no blacks can exactly. come anywhere near this thing that we have. Um, and of course, as we go on, it's like there are there are things that there are benefits that white people will enjoy. You know, being part of the you know the largest the majority right. ethnicity in our country. Um, but to assign malice to it or or to cultivate grievance for it on behalf of those that aren't white is uh it, it's really it, it it's ugly it's yes. just it's an ugly way to frame like what they're advocating yeah. for it's a divisive strife ridden way of trying to get at something you see as a problem yeah um one last uh two-sentence paragraph here. We challenge individual white persons to confess their participation in the sin of racism and repent for past and current racist practices. Now, just hear me again. Read that first sentence. This is the United Methodist Church as a whole adopting this resolution that... Six million members. Right. That indicts every single person within the denomination who has white skin. Because here again is that sentence. We challenge individual white persons to confess their participation in the sin of racism and repent for past and current racist practices. Now imagine if they adopted a resolution that said, we challenge wives to repent of not submitting to their husbands. Oh, man. That, that denomination would blow exactly. up in not a good way. Exactly. So there's there's a couple of things going on. Going on. Obviously, this is easier in the sense that they have adopted sort of a, a trendy, like racism, everyone is willing to acknowledge racism as a sin. So it's like it, it's got, there's not a whole lot of cost to identify. Right. It's one. like there's no, there's no prophetic boldness right. required to condemn the thing that everybody, everybody is already excited to condemn. Correct. But you can still posture that you're bold as though you're Martin Luther King or something. Yes. And that's, and the way they're posturing that they're bold is also the problematic thing, which is that it indicts, it has its finger pointed at every single white person in the United Methodist Church. Yeah. It doesn't say, we challenge racists to confess their participation in the sin of racism. It says, we challenge individual white persons yeah. to confess the sin. So the assumption is, if you're white, you have committed the sin of racism, and you have current and past, it says, racist practices to repent yeah. of. Is, is racism ever defi defined? Not that I saw. Not in the resolution itself. Yeah. So uh, racism is, is a is a is a difficult to define, or at least maybe a better way to say it, there are competing definitions. Right. So more conservative-minded people will define it more specifically as acts of prejudice right. against somebody else based on their race, whereas people on the progressive left will define racism as either it's, it's systems, but it is also a an, an, an imposition upon a minority race of um, by some by the majority race. It's like an act of power, yeah. an aggressive act of power. So a a black person because they're a minority race is not capable of racism because they do not have the power 
to impose their will on others. Right. Which is, so it's a, and I, I realize this is a, you know, this is a loaded word, but it really is a Marxist way of viewing the world. So it's saying that the person who, the, the, the bourgeoisie cannot, or he, he is capable of a sin. The proletariat is mm-hmm. not. The guy in the upper class is capable of a sin. The guy in the lower class is not. Yeah. And that's not the Bible's framing of human conduct and morality. Right. So the Bible says all are sinned or all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, Galatians 3.28, I mentioned that earlier. Here there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus, referring to the salvation that we receive in Christ. Um, So... Every human sinful. Every human has access. Uh, uh, every every human can be saved by calling out on the name of Christ. And when you do call out on the name of Christ, it doesn't matter who you are, uh, ethnicity, whatever. Right. Um, you you're saved. So God shows no partiality. But that is that is not what we're seeing in this. No, this is here. the definition of partiality. Um, to give them credit, just this last sentence I'll read. This is this sentence I was glad was in it. Uh, we challenge individual ethnic persons to appropriate acts of forgiveness. That that at least, I was pleased to see that because yeah. it at least, um, one of the things I'm going to say as we go on is that this white privilege mindset generally does not have any possibility of forgiveness. There is no, there is no reconciliation at the end of it. It's, con- it's, it's a feverish. It's uh, an engine of irreconcilable difference. Exactly. So I was at least glad to see that they were Christian enough, yeah. aware of the cross enough <laughs> to to yeah. exhort people to that. Can you, so I've got one other one from a famous essay, but can you uh, yeah, flesh yeah. out the COVID video from a couple yeah, years ago? This, this, there's a video, I, I, I first saw this a couple years ago, making the rounds during um, COVID when after George Floyd was killed and it was very, things are very tense. Um, and so I, I think it would be like an application of this resolution here. Mm. And this resolution was in 2016. Yeah. So this goes back yeah. seven years or so. Um, but th- in this video, what you had was um, white people um, kind of in, an, it, it was this assembly, it looked like it was like a, like a public park uh, under, um, you know, picnic shelter or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you had, you know, there was a handful of black folks that were in this group. Um, and then all the white people in unison got down on their knees and they were expressing uh, some act of contrition for their privilege, uh, for their racism. And it, it it wasn't a confession of specific sins. Yeah. So if there was a specific sin, it's like, hey, like, here's how I've treated you wrongly. Here, here, here's bitterness or hatred I've harbored in my heart against you. That would be an appropriate thing um, to ask forgiveness. But to... Like to, but to kneel. Right. I was gonna say, although even then we wouldn't have the guy yeah. kneel. Yeah. It's, it's like you know, you and I. Whenever we sin against each other, yeah. it's like we. It is a regular thing between Wade and I. It's like, man, I was, I, I blew it there. I'm sorry. I, you know, I love you. Forgive me, please. And but I don't right. get on my knees right. and like you know plead with you, please. Like yeah. It's so it is a, it, it is an idolatrous. Um, it, I would say it is idolatrous because it is seeking absolution from a deified person mm-hmm. that has within them the righteousness and the ju- the you know the righteousness and a, a just disposition to grant yeah you know absolution for sin and it is um, yeah I'd ask him do you feel that angsty when you uh, 
blaspheme God or have an idol? Like, like, are you that angsty about repenting to God of your sins against him? Right. Yeah. It, I mean, it's kind of like the, the scene in Isaiah 6 where it's like he's, he's confronted mm. with this vision of the Lord. He's so blown away by the holiness of God and the seraphim around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh, it is... I mean, it is a, one of the most gripping and just like edge of your seat kind of moments in the Bible. Um, and he just like falls on his face like, woe is me. I am undone. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. It kind of has that feel. Yeah. It's like these these holy black people. Um, and, and, I, and I say this with no disrespect to black folks. I'm, I'm saying this as a, as a matter of acknowledging just how absurd it is that a group of people would bow before another group of people um, with contrition, seeking forgiveness, as though those people are righteous and have this ability to to give absolution. It would be just as ridiculous if it were wives doing it to husbands, husbands doing it to wives, uh, black people doing it to white people, Asian people doing it to... Like, it's a ridiculous... Not only is it ridiculous and comical, but it it's exposing something. That visual is expo. You have some kind of obsession, some compulsion, to free yourself of this guilt that yeah. that our ethos, our culture, our the atmosphere of twenty first century America has put on you. Yeah. And you you just you have to get rid of it. And you're just you're obsessed with getting rid of it. Like that's what that shows me. It does, and and we'll we'll get into this um, a little bit later in the episode. But it is a. Like this idea of white privilege, it creates a category of sin that is unspecific and vague. So right. you never really know when you've done it, and the forgiveness is never really given. So you never really have it absolved. Right. And so you have white people have this original sin of whiteness that they carry around, and there's there is a weight. It, it burdens people's consciences in ways that um, it. It, it doesn't represent a gospel freedom mm-hmm. that we're meant to experience in Christ. And so it is. it undermines the truth of the gospel. And if this were, you know, uh, I don't know, the, the United Way right. issuing a resolution like this, we would still have similar critiques. But it's, it's different when you're critiquing a secular organization. Mm-hmm. But this is the United Methodist Church, which claims to represent Jesus Christ, and his church on earth yeah. and the gospel um, doing something that will undermine everything they stand for. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the the aura that this thing creates, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote here an essay, a famous essay that sort of uh, kickstarted the the concept or the idea back in 1989, or at least was a big part of popularizing it. But before I read that, just l- let me say one thing that this aura reminds me of. I'm not a scholar of Hinduism. But I had a buddy who was a part of our church plant years ago who was from uh, Mumbai, and he got me connected with a few other. In- so, like, I, I had this season of my life where I, I knew a, a fair number of, like, Indian-American guys. And the sense that I have, one of the senses I have of Hinduism is that, like, this weight of what you may or may not have done in your past lives, this weight of, mm-hmm. like— is <clears throat> it is around you and there is there's nothing you can do to mm. be freed from it there's this moral fault i have that i have no memory of actually committing myself and there is no way i can be freed from it wow that's that's a great parallel because it's it's like it, it is like the sins of our ancestors right. and, you know, <laughs> right. it's like, it's almost like, you know, white people of today are the reincarnated souls of slave owners right. from 200 years ago. And, and, and there's nothing you can do to undo it. It's just, you're yeah. walking around with, and 
So that's that's kind of the the greatest danger of this thing. But let me let me real quick give a couple of quotes from this uh, essay called "White Privilege: Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack." Came out in 1989. It's it's a a pretty famous one in this world uh, as far as popularizing the term, the phrase "white privilege." But two quotes here I want to put in front of you. The first one uh, underscores that this is a sin with no possibility of repentance. Here, Peggy says, I was taught to think that racism could end if white individuals changed their attitudes. This is her talking as a white woman. She says, I was taught as a white person to think racism could end if white individuals changed their attitudes. But a white skin in the United States opens many doors for whites, whether or not we approve of the way dominance has been conferred on us. Individual acts can palliate, but cannot end these problems. So you individual white person, it doesn't matter if you repudiate racism. It doesn't matter if you repent of actual acts of racism you've committed. It doesn't matter, individual white person, what you do. Uh, and so you can see this is a sin. This white privilege is a sin that has no possibility of repentance. It's a guilt with no gospel. Uh, second quote from her. She says, it seems that obliviousness about white advantage, like obliviousness about male advantage. She's a feminist. Uh, mm -hmm. shocking, I'm sure, <laughs> is kept strongly enculturated in the United States so as to maintain the myth of meritocracy. Meritocracy being you, you achieve based on, or you, you are rewarded based on your achievements, your intelligence, your skill. That's a myth, she says. The myth that democratic choice is equally available to all. Keeping most people unaware that freedom of confident action is there for just a small number of people props up those in power and serves to keep power in the hands of the same groups that have most of it already. Hmm. And just two thoughts I wrote down. One that is grossly overstated. She, she, is, she is making it seem as though we are in some just absolutely nefarious matrix. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's this secret cabal of white people up at the very top who are keeping everybody else under their, their boots. Yeah, uh, and that—that's just—it's it, massively oversimplified and and patently not true. Number two, God has not made an advantageless world. Like people have advantages, and He made it that way. Yeah. And so if you're going to get frustrated or think there is a moral fault every single time someone has an advantage, you're going to end up being mad at God for the yeah. way He made the world. He made Michael six what four six four six four. I'm five. I don't know. two. Five yes. one? Yeah, something like that. I think on my driver's license I said like 5'11". I'm like 5'9 or something. <laughs> so that's breaking the ninth commandment. I should repent of that. Um, but so if I, were to, if I were to just think that there was something sinister, either on your part or on God's part or just inherent in the world, mm -hmm. because you're taller than me, I'm believing a lie. God didn't do something unjust, unjust to me by making me shorter than you or making yeah. Brad Pitt more handsome than me or making Elon Musk smarter than me or making... I don't know. Right? Yeah, I think that what you're referring to, we see that in Scripture in places like 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Uh, well, 12 especially, where he talks about the composition of the body of Christ, where you have different people that have different gifts. Some gifts are clearly uh, more advantageous, Yeah, um, like a an eye, an ear, a mouth, things like that. And there will be... There will be advantages and gifts, benefits that accrue to those people, and then you have other gifts that you know. And Paul calls them the you know the the not presentable parts, something mm -hmm. like that. 
Uh, and he said, you treat those with greater modesty, and they're also treated with honor. So the it, it's kind of like Velcro, where um, you you have different kinds of materials that hold together because they're different kinds of materials. Yeah. Um, but you, in a body of Christ, you have all these different kinds of people, and they're not equal. Right. Like, the idea of equality, blanket equality, is a myth. It's a pipe dream, and it's not even good. Yeah. Um, but what is good is whenever you have different kinds of people that have different gifts and strengths and other people that have you know a, a totally different set of gifts and strengths and they look out for one another they uh they they balance each other out mm-hmm. even if one person has a greater proportion of gifts uh, and some other person has a lesser proportion of gifts um that that is an inequality but that is not an injustice. Right. That's not a moral problem. That's a design feature of the world. And I have faith that God will work it out uh, in, in the new heavens and the new earth such that everybody, everybody's cup will be full. Everybody will be perfectly satisfied and delighted in the Lord. Uh, we will not envy one another. And I do believe that there will be degrees of, there will be inequality in heaven. Right. Uh, we have angels and we have archangels, right? So we have, uh, we, we have degrees of order, even amongst the perfect heavenly host. And I, I mean, if any angel was envious of an archangel, then that would be sin. But we're not going to sin. So uh, I'm not going to envy your dashing good looks whenever we're in heaven. Um, because... Because there will be uh, the, the inequalities, we'll just we'll be able to see them through the lens of, of faith um, and the perfection. One other thing I wanted to say about the sin and repentance, like the white skin, um, the Bible talks about sin, which is uh, it's a it's a it's a category that can cover a lot of ground and can be a bit nebulous and hard to pin down. But the Bible also speaks of transgression, mm-hmm. which which is an important concept when you're talking about just kind of blanket condemnations on people uh, for things that you can't really identify. Transgression means I can look at a statute right. in the Scripture. It says, don't do this, and I did it. I've transgressed the law, mm-hmm. therefore I am guilty of a sin, and then justice will be some restitution for it. That is, you don't get that with this white privilege. It's this nebulous, uh, ill-defined, even multiple definitions. People use definitions to their own advantage mm-hmm. of race, racism, or privilege, white privilege. You, do, you What do you do with that? It, it's, it's like your existence is sin. Yeah. And that that is very wounding and damaging to people's consciences. And, you know, we'll get to this in a bit, too. It's like... The gospel purchased for us a clean conscience, and we need to be able to live with a clean conscience. That is that is a fruit of the gospel. We can be holy and live righteous lives when we believe that we have been truly purified and that there is no stain of sin that remains, right. that Christ has covered it all. Therefore, with a clean conscience, I'm no longer burdened by this guilty feeling. And white privilege is that the whole it's designed it's created to make white people feel guilty for who they are and it weighs them down and it's it's a cruel way to relate to one another and it's destructive relationally yeah so great great point shrink this down to like a thanksgiving dinner shrink it down to a family how uncomfortable would it be how how 
void of joy and mirth and gladness would a Thanksgiving dinner be amongst a family where it's like the mom is angry at the dad for something she's never said out loud, something he cannot make right, some undefinable sin, or where the child knows he has he he's, he's displeased his parents, but he has really no clue how to make it right or what he yeah. actually did. We all know, like, that would be a miserable place to be. That would be a miserable household and holiday. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of what this thing creates at a national cultural level. It's like it creates people who are not sure what they did, but they did something and they don't know how to make it right. And they really, okay, so here's my question. Do you actually want fruitful relationships between black and white people, between people of different Mm -hmm. ethnicities? I do. Yeah. If you actually want them burdening one party with a guilt that cannot be absolved won't get you there. <laughs> right. Yeah, there, there will be no reconciliation in that environment. And, and what it does to, uh, it, it also wounds a black person's conscience. Yeah. Because it gives them a feeling of righteousness that is unwarranted. Um, I mean, black people need the gospel too. And black people receive the gospel the same way yeah. by recognizing their sin and repenting of it and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, if, if you feel as though you are morally righteous and that your blackness gives you a halo, and, and there's, there, that's not an uncommon sentiment that we see represented. Yeah. Um, that's, that, that is a dangerous thing that what it, it alienates people further from the gospel because it makes them, they have a harder time acknowledging their sinfulness. Yeah. Let me, let me read it this way. So this is, this is our lay of the land. Our bumper sticker statement is adopting the white privilege mindset is relational acid. And just to flesh it out a little bit, when you assign a group of people a fault or guilt against another group of people for which they cannot be absolved, but they can just hope to lessen it through constant self-abasement or toil, like you were describing, getting on your knees in a park for people to stream to TikTok. When you do that, you are making it impossible for the two groups to have genuinely fruitful relationships. If you ever assign one party in any relationship or society a guilt and a shame that cannot be atoned for, that can never truly be forgiven or blotted out, you have made actual harmony impossible. And instead, you'll have strife, bitterness, and envy, which is what we see now. Yeah, I, I think like what this is what is why God's gift of discipline in a home is a good proxy, because whenever you have a child that disobeys mm. their parents, uh, there is a consequence, and then immediately you're done. It's over. It's over. If a child had to live with dad's scowls and bad attitude for weeks on end, yep. um, that would be that would be overly burdensome for the child because then he would, the child would be the relationship would be fractured between yep. child and father, um, and so it's when you have, I'm, I'm not implying that white people are black. Oh, somebody's the father and some's a child. What I'm saying is that when you have people that have a sense that this will never end. Yes. There's no there's no end to the amount of penance and self-abasement and uh, discipline that I can undergo that will purge me of this. Um, that that's like living with a dad. Yeah. That there's 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 no sense of finality. He or spanks me and he's still angry. Yeah. But I think in a, in a healthy home, if if a father disciplines the child, then immediately it's like, son, I love you. 
give them a hug. It's like, I forgive you. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, and you, you, re, you immediately reassure the child that the relationship is intact, right. even though you had to administer discipline. I, I think this, a, child's, a child that doesn't have some sense of closure is going to, be a, is, is, is going to have a really hard time. Um, just they'll be weighed down. Yeah. Their conscience will be weighed down. I want an America filled with the people who are currently in it. I don't want anybody leaving. All 330 million people who are here currently. Like, let's let's have you here and that. Have the atmosphere of a healthy household where we're glad we're together. And we're glad, and obviously I, I want Christ to be at the center of it. I want all 330 million to bow the knee to Christ. Amen. But I want, I want that kind of atmosphere where we are bonded together on the same team with this, like, if there's this constant sense of friction, um, a society becomes un, uh, impossible. Yeah. Society, by definition, is people who live in concert with one another. Hmm. Yeah. I, I keep going. I'm, I'm reminded of a text here I want to look up and read. But. I, there's obviously a sense in which what I just said is literally impossible. We're never going to have all 330 or whatever million people literally living in concert with each other, loving to be here and being good neighbors. But what we're doing right now with the CRT mindset, the white privilege mindset, this sort of cultural Marxism, what we're doing now is we're actively working against that goal. Yeah. This is this this is a you know it's an anecdote, but take it for what it's worth. If you were alive during 2001, 9/11. The, the the few weeks after 9-11, the sense that everybody in the United States was bonded together did uh, that was that was an appro- that was an appropriate yeah. uh, sort of national sentiment. Like that's what God made societies yeah. to be. That's what we before the fall, we would have all been bonded together, pointed in the same direction, working together. We're never going to recapture that completely this side of Christ's return. But when nations do that, especially obviously mm-hmm. when the end is just, when they're bonded together, it's it makes for better society. Yeah. Well, a common enemy can unify yeah. disparate groups. Um, and that was the unfortunate situation Correct, with yeah. 9-11. But, but there was a sense of there is an us. Yes. Uh, there, there, we... Black people and white people in America saw one another more as an us yes. than an us and them. You remember that pitch from George W. Bush at the yeah. Yankees game? I mean, perfect that, strike. Yes, and that moment was like it was know, electric. Yeah, it was it was phenomenal. Let me read you this text. This is James three. He says, "But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So you'll be arrogant and you'll be dishonest. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above." So this is not from the Lord, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Yeah. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That verse right there is is like the the memory verse for critical race theory. Yeah, that's right. Because it, it what it fosters is jealousy and selfish ambition, and what it produces is disorder and every vile practice. Conversely, the next verse. But the wisdom from above is first, hopefully what Wade and I are representing on this podcast is wisdom from above because it is biblical wisdom. But it is first pure, meaning that there is a truth, there is a purity of doctrine, mm-hmm. there's a purity of, of, of belief that, be, that initiates it, then peaceable, 
gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Right. Nobody could honestly say CRT is peaceable. Yeah, there, it, 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 there's, there's, it, it only gives a, a minor tip of the hat to peace, but it, does, it doesn't truly promise it, and it absolutely cannot deliver it. Yeah. What, see, what critical race theory will deliver is disorder and every vile practice. Right. Because that's what it's made for. Right. It, it, it is, you know, I, I don't want to overstate it, but I do think it is congruent with the sort of factiousness that marks out hell. Yeah. So, I mean, the demons, the rebel angels, Satan, uh, they are by nature divisive. They rebelled against the maker and they are in rebellion against him to this day. And envy and factiousness and divisiveness, that's that's why they traffic in those things. And CRT is congruent with that. It yeah. breeds factiousness. Um, diving deeply here. Let me just say when and where there is actual sinful partiality. And so a good example of sinful partiality, sinful racial hatred or animus would be uh, uh, when we had separate drinking fountains yeah. or when uh, black people could not sit down on a bus. Like the, these are actual sinful partiality. When that exists, it needs confronted and it needs made right. You name it, you point it out, you're explicit. Yeah. You say it needs to end and then you make it right. The person who did it confesses. And if it's criminal, they are punished. Yeah, That's how it needs to work. But this current white privilege mindset does not confront named concrete sinful actions like that. It doesn't say those two drinking fountains, they need to be one drinking fountain. Yeah. Or even particular laws right. that, that, are, that express some uh, racist, uh, you know, you know right. what I'm saying? It's yes. like racist laws that deliberately... Right. Uh, Your interest rates... Or high, you, yeah. have, you have, you have an you interest go. rate for black people and an interest rate for white people. Yeah. Stop that right now. Yeah, that would be clearly uh, evil. That would right. be a wicked injustice partiality. Instead, what this thing does is it's got that vague pervasive guilt you just described to all people with white skin. It imputes it to all people with white skin. And the guilt is concrete, but the sins are not. There you the go. The guilt's real. The, we're going to hold you to that. Yeah. Even though we can't name any explicit actions, there is no way to successfully confront and repent of the supposed sin. Instead, there is a hidden unspoken system of penance that the person must engage in to hopefully lessen his guilt. And this is like what Martin Luther felt pre uh, his conversion. Yeah. Where he's like, I think at one point he crawled up the steps in Rome uh, that that uh, Constantine's mom brought back that supposedly were the ones that Jesus walked up. Um, he, he walked up them on his knees, crawled them up on his mm. knees. Like, because that was supposedly some act of penance that would absolve him of some guilt. Like his conscience was, yeah. told, give me anything. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. crawl back to Jerusalem on my belly. Just tell me what'll make me. Yeah. And that's why we need a, a bloody torture Correct. cross because it, it the there there needs to be something of such uh, a visceral pain and torturous experience by Christ that would say there is there is nothing anybody could possibly humanly do to surpass the suffering of the cross, and that is 
that is not just in reference to the physical aspects of the cross, but the the weight of Jesus, the Son of God, being experiencing alienation from the Father. Yeah. When he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, that is, like, how stupid is it to climb a bunch of stairs on your knees? Right. It's like, no, like, that's how can you add to your atonement by doing something like that? It's like the, the atonement of Christ is sufficient. So we were atoning for phony sins through phony acts of penance that just burden and, and causes Christians to be alienated from their Savior. Right. I, I, this is, I really hate this ideology because of the damage it does to people's souls. Yeah, no one is grateful for Christ after that. No one is grateful for his sacrifice. You've just got to keep it. You know what I'd want to ask those people in that video you described? The, the white people who knelt in front, I would want to, after they were done, I'd want to ask them, number one, what did you specifically do? What sin did you commit that you were just kneeling for? Number two, okay, is it over now? Who is the God you're kneeling to? (laughs) But now are you guiltless? Are you forgiven now? Now that you have done this, is it over? And of course, the the, really, whatever they would say, we know the answer is no, it's not over. I'm gonna have to do this again. Because the the sin is, is the system that all white people participate right. in, but the system is hidden from view, and therefore it cannot really be dismantled. And there's no way for me to actually leave the system all the way. I will never be able to really not be a part of it. Yeah, It's, it's, it's unending. Um, the mindset also assumes that whatever moral fault, this white privilege mindset also assumes whatever moral fault is involved in disparities between ethnicities is the moral fault of racism. So it assumes there is a moral fault if, let's say, uh, you've got this many more, or this higher percentage of black men in prison than white men. You know, the X percentage of black men are in prison, but only white, per- only blank percentage of white men are in prison. It assumes that there is a moral fault there that is causing that disparity, and then it assumes that the moral fault is racism. So there's two yeah. assumptions baked in there. Yeah. It- Monocausality between or monocausality for every uh, every problem or negative experience that any racial minority would have, yeah. which con- conversely gives them a sense of innocence even if they're guilty. Right. So if like if a black man commits a crime and goes to prison for it, it's like well, he, he, there there is there is some extent to which he could claim racism made him do it. So it's a race, like he was, he's, he's a victim of oppression, he's a victim of racism, which absolves him of his moral responsibility, and it robs him of his agency. Right. It, it, it ends up telling people, it's like, you're, you actually have no control over your actions. Your actions are, are merely the consequences of the racist system that you're in, and some marionette is, is, yeah. is kind of holding Which the, is incredibly condescending and incredibly it paternalistic. Well, it's, and you've, uh, there's these videos, I, don't, I assume you've seen them, but there, there are videos where people assume like the absolute inability of black people to do anything. Right. So there'll, there'll be these kind of camera interview things where they'll go out on a, a college campus or something and say like, hey, do you think uh, we should require uh, voter IDs? And people say, well, well, no, I think that's racist. 
Like, really? Why is it racist? Well, you know, black people, they can't they, they can't get IDs and stuff. I've heard this. I know, I know. It's and, just, it's... Or it's like black people picture. don't have access to a computer. I'm like, what? I know. Like, well, how insulting could you be? I can already picture the 21-year-old college, white college student that probably said that. And so this is, you know, again, this is another anecdote. Take it for what it's worth. But I've lived in the real world for 37 years, 38 years. I think I can comment on it a little bit without having a study to back it up. <laughs> <laughs> I can picture tons of regular 30, 40, 50 year old blue collar guys who you know who work in auto mechanics or weld shops or whatever, plum, you know, plumbers <clears throat> who would absolutely not give that the time of day. White guys who would be like, "Dude, come on. Get get a freaking license. They're fine." Yeah. But well, I've I've seen reaction videos for, that made by black people. Right, exactly. They're, and they're just like, who, what, what do you think How of us? How stupid do you like, think I am? Right. right. It is totally. And and I would say like, what is so funny uh, in a tragic way is like that attitude is a racist attitude. Yeah. Because like these people are so inferior that they need me to rescue them from their own ineptness and inability to get a driver's license yeah. to register to vote. And that's, I th- I have noticed. People who are white people who are so removed from actual black people, but are, you know, indoctrinated with what I would call these pretty liberal impulses. That's where you find that stuff most rampant. Yeah, it's they really don't have any actual personal knowledge of a real black person. They're not like friends with one. And so it's like they just they just imagine this sort of poor victim wandering around this, you know, America that is just Mm -hmm. filled with oppression and we better we better rescue them and it's yeah. just it's incredibly dehumanizing yeah like i would never treat my kids that way i would never be like oh you know to any of my kids like he, he can't he can't obey it's yeah. not possible for him he can't follow the rules in the house that, yeah. that's and, and you are, there are some very honest progressives that will tell you liberals are every bit as racist as they accuse supposed conservatives of their racism. Yeah. It's like the, this the attitude that they have is so condescending and it, it's it's a it's a different manifestation of it. But they they think that people are just incapable of of, of yeah. doing the most mundane normal tasks for themselves. And I do think most people can sense that. So I, I think most people can tell uh, you know, Hillary Clinton comes to mind, but like just just somebody who's incredibly fake, who does not actually care about the cause that he or she is trumpeting like you can pick up on it you can smell that we're not dummies as human beings we've got pretty good intuition usually mm-hmm. and i think the the liberals who act like they're you know just all about helping the black person but really it's it's just a cause to virtue signal or something yeah. that the dnc has told them to do yeah i i don't so i'm 10 years older than you wade and i can i, I can be a little bit more more curmudgeonly about it i don't buy it for a second yeah I don't believe it. I think that they are posturing some, and, th- and that is their own sense of like, I need to find something that can make me righteous. And so me being anti-racist, that's right. my that's my virtue signal. That will be my indicator to the world that I am actually a good, righteous person. It's not because they care about real black people yeah. in their lives, because they pro- many of them don't even know them. Yeah, and that's contemptible. Like, is. That is a contemptible thing. Um. This mindset also, like CRT and Marxism generally, this white privilege mindset trains your heart to view others' blessings with suspicion. Marxism is a divisive philosophy of envy. Come on. Its enemies are gratitude and contentment. 
If you're, if you're contented and you're grateful for your life, Marxism cannot get you. <laughs> its food is bitterness, strife, and envy. It's a worldview built on violating the 10th commandment. Where true injustice exists, it should be confronted and dealt with. And where true oppression happens, it should be punished. But this way of looking at the world converts every blessing your neighbor has into an injustice against you. Hmm. It trains your mind to see others' gifts as your oppression. So like, I mean, if I, imagine me, if I was walking around every day, just, just ticked off that I wasn't LeBron James. And I mean, it's a, it's a cartoonish example, d- despite the fact that I am every bit as gifted athletically as, Mr. <laughs> James, as King James. But I mean, imagine if that governed my life. If every yeah. time I, I saw a picture of LeBron James, I was just like, just ticked off. That, that's, that's, a, that's a cartoonish exaggeration of what this mindset really does. It, everything everybody yeah. else has that I don't have is a slight against me. Well, it, it, or even they, they took it from me. Right. That should have been mine, but it's not. They took it from me. It, it's kind of like this, this whole zero-sum game that, yes. mindset that people have about economics where they think like if you know, there's only a fixed amount of dollars in the world. Right. And if somebody ends up with more dollars, that means they that's potentially taking something away from me rather than seeing wealth as something that could be created. Correct. Uh, the, the same thing with any blessing. It, it's like God, God's blessings are not a, in a fixed number. And it's like, well, you get to the end of the day, it's like, well, you've run out of blessings for today, planet Earth. So right. nobody else is getting any more. And Frank over here, because he's white, he got a double portion. Mm-hmm. It's like, you no, know, God, it's like people, God blesses people according to his to his own purpose, his own sovereign will, and they're not, it's not a fixed amount, and we absolutely should not envy one right. another's blessings. And of course, this is a human thing. I envy the blessings oh, of others. Oh, absolutely. All the time, I'm like, man, I wish I could do that. I I'm sure I literally have been jealous of LeBron James. Like, no <laughs> joke, I'm sure I've- You're envying yeah, right now. Exactly. I can see it in your I, eyes, yeah, I know, I totally wish. <laughs> I mean, but like in the Bible, just, just story after story of God, I'm thinking of Genesis right now, but of God just pouring out blessings on people, and he is allowed to do that, and it's not yeah. a bad thing. So Abram has 318 servants, I think, when he goes and rescues yep. Lot. God blessed him with all of that. That giant, or the parable of the ten of the talents. That's right, of the, the talents. The guy got that's right. ten, five, and one. I mean, Jacob is a great example. Jacob's a flawed man. He's a terrible husband. He does, you know, he he is a little. He's a thief with his brother. I mean, like he's he's not a great guy. And God sees fit to bless him with all of this stuff, and and to take Laban's wealth and give it to Jacob. Yeah. And Laban would not have had any case to go before God and say. But those were my sheep, you know. Yeah. Like God's, no, I own everything, and I can apportion it how I choose. Now, real injustice, real theft, real stealing, real oppression absolutely should be confronted. But the this this thing, it just disciples your heart into being ticked yeah. every time somebody has something you don't. Yeah, and that goes against God's will. Yeah, the white privilege mindset has not made anybody more godly. No. That's a great way to put it. Nobody has ever been more sanctified by adopting the white privilege. Yeah. Let me read this quote from, this is from Carl Truman. Um, So he's referring to critical race theory, CRT. Um, But without explaining what CRT is, uh, I figure most of our listeners would know what it is. But basically it is the white privilege comes from this same school of thought. But But it applies to what we're saying here. Carl Truman says, 
CRT, critical race theory, like other critical theories, is self-certifying. Its basic claims, for example, that racism is systemic or that being non-racist is impossible are not conclusions drawn from arguments. Mm. They are axioms, and they cannot be challenged by those who do not agree with them. Those who dissent or offer criticism are, by definition, part of the problem. It's not a theory. It's a dogma. The attraction is obvious. Critical race theory rests on simple therapeutic premises. Mm. That's an important point, therapeutic. Mm -hmm. It's meant to make a certain group of people feel better, another group of people feel worse. But it leaves no room for argument or doubt. For all its sophisticated language, CRT portrays life as a zero-sum game. Some people do not have power. They struggle and do not flourish. This happens because somebody else has seized power from them and oppresses them in an ongoing and unrelenting way. The oppression has solidified into a self-justifying system. There is a comprehensive explanation for all the evils we suffer. All embracing and transformative views often have a religious quality. CRT is no exception. Yeah, absolutely. That that's is fire. religion. <laughs> I, no, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's phenomenal. And that, that, that probably says everything that I would want to say on it much better. Uh, he's a hundred percent right that it's a religion. It, for those who are into apologetics, it's it's a presuppositional apologetic too. I mean, like mm-hmm. so it, the, it just assumes its transcendent nature, right. and you can't argue. And if you try to argue against it, you arguing against it actually proves you already know it, and you're part of the problem. Yeah, like it cannot be logically, rationally debated. It is the axiom underpinning all truth. Yeah, um, and that that's that 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 illustrates how poisonous it is Mm -hmm. because it is the worldview of all worldviews like you cannot take off the glasses if you take off you you can't just say like i'm going to adopt a little bit of it over here like it governs your thinking about everything so if you say i disagree with that well you're just trying to preserve your power exactly because you're an oppressor if you say oh well uh you know, I, I, that hurts white people, too. Well, that's because of your white fragility. Exactly. Um, and, or if you say, like, why, you know, I, this this harms me. It's like, well, that's your white privilege speaking. And you want to, you know, maintain your privileged station. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, it, it all all roads lead back to you're a racist. Correct. And there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And there's no forgiveness either. Yeah. It's absurd. Thoroughly godless, anti-gospel. Uh, so let me let me just uh, both of us here together. We'll give some some Bible saturated Christian thinking uh, from Hebrews ten. I want to I want to show you Christians should operate <clears throat> as forgiven people with clean consciences. We should not be burdened by a sense of past sins from prior generations of which I cannot ever be forgiven. Yeah. Or even sins of myself. Yeah. Let's say I actually I did not only other sins but i committed actual racism you can be forgiven repent of it yeah and be forgiven here's hebrews 10 where there is forgiveness of these sins transgressions of the law where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Come on. You are forgiven, saint. You do yeah. not need to constantly abase yourself or or toil and strive for forgiveness from yeah. this vague sense. Yeah. Of... I, I, this is – so I, I personally – just my, my natural disposition is I have a guilty conscience. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I feel guilty about that. And that's why this this is, is a passionate subject for me uh, because I've I've lived a long time just feeling guilty about things. I mean, I feel guilty about things that I'm, I should feel guilty yeah. for, much less things that I haven't even done. And the thing that I think is so important from this text is that a clean conscience is a blood-bought gift right. of the gospel. Jesus died not merely to forgive your sin objectively, but for you to feel it. Right. It's like you should you should feel forgiven and not – it's like for you to walk around with your head low and just this self-abasing. And this is all over the Reformed Christian world. Yep. We Because we believe in a big God, because we believe sin is deadly and ugly, total depravity, it has created in us um, – unwittingly perhaps, but nevertheless, it is still a, a mark of our tribe. It's that we we really feel bad about ourselves. We hate ourselves, self-loathing. Yep. Um, and I'm part of that. I've participated in that. And I'm, I want to be free of it, but it's my own sanctification. Hopefully the Lord will continue to purge me of that. But it's good to be reminded that Jesus died not merely to forgive us, but an additional benefit is that we can feel it by having a clean conscience. That's right. To where we don't need to feel guilty anymore for things we didn't do. And the the benefit of that is that when we do feel guilty, that could that could tune our heart to the Spirit's conviction. So when we feel it, we're like, you know, uh, I, something is off in my heart here. There must be sin because this is not the way I normally feel. And so you can... You can have a. It can help you to detect when real sin is present. Yeah, absolutely. And this this clean conscience. That's that's the blood gift for every Christian about everything. So some of our listeners right now, you may be listening to this. You may either not be white, or you may be white and have never struggled with this. Mm-hmm. This little part that we're talking about right now, this is for you. Period. About whatever, whatever. If you have this little satanic, demonic fleshly nagging sense of some vague guilt this is this is your uh birthright as a born again christian mm-hmm. and you should you should cling to it yeah um couple verses here from uh from first corinthians I'll, I'll kick it over to you after these uh i'll just read two more verses first corinthians 3 3 uh I want you to see jealousy and strife. These are features of the flesh. And jealousy and strife are like the, that's the battle cry of white privilege mindset and CRT. First Corinthians 33, for you are still of the flesh, Paul tells the Corinthian church, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Hmm. And Galatians 5, Paul writes, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envies. Does it sound yet like CRT? <laughs> drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I would imagine there's some drunkenness and orgies at the CRT conventions probably. <laughs> I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are mm. not of God. Wow. 
Uh, yeah, that's good. I've, I've got one here, Ephesians two thirteen, um, that I'll read. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, Mm. so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. A couple of comments I want to make on this text is that there is a, what Paul is talking about here is the greatest divide that humans could, you know, could possibly conjure up, which is this Jew-Gentile divide. Yeah. Um, and I think what happens is a lot of, it, I don't know if people actually would teach this or think it directly, but it's almost like this subtle thing that gets in the back of our minds that the Jew and Gentile divide is the divide between white people and black people. Yeah, yeah. And so we see, well, then in this case, who are the Jews and who are the Gentiles? Well, the Jews would be the those that were closer to God, that were the privileged people. And uh, so white people see themselves in this seat of privilege um, and, you know, how it's almost like they read themselves into the Jewish narrative mm-hmm. as the ones who who really screwed it up and rejected their Messiah. And so there's this this imputed idea of guilt about um, guilt and also responsibility. But the reality is is that most of the Christian world, um, Western Christian world is is Gentile, right. So it's 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 like the 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 uh, division between us is lesser than the division between Jew and Gentile. So it's whatever what what Christ did to overcome that, that barrier is uh, if Christ could overcome that barrier, then certainly he could overcome the barriers with us. And so this idea that um, that that we're the we're the Jewish people or something like that, it's like that's that, that's inaccurate. It's like we are Gentiles, black people are Gentiles, and we all approach Christ from the same direction. Um, so I, yeah. I, th- I think it's a beautiful text just about what Christ accomplished in terms of bringing unity. Yeah. Um, Two quotes here from Clement of Alexandria, uh, second century church father. So some, you know, somewhere around 200 years after Jesus. Um, I, I wanted to give you two quotes from him that illustrate uh, that races do not intrinsically, no race, no ethnicity intrinsically carries with it moral fault or moral virtue. Hmm. He says, uh, first, scripture teaches not to wrong anyone belonging to another race and bring him under the yoke when there is no other cause to allege than difference of race, which is no cause at all, being neither wickedness nor the effect of wickedness. So don't put anyone under a yoke, literal or uh, philosophical and moral. Don't put anyone under a yoke merely because of their race, because race doesn't, uh, is not the effect of wickedness and it doesn't bring with it wickedness. And one other quote, he says, we admit that the same nature exists in every race and the same virtue, meaning the same capacity for virtue is in everyone of any race. It is not uh, because you are of a particular race does not make you uh, further away from virtue. All right. 
just a couple logs and specs that I've seen in the American church. Uh, in the past, number one, in the past, we as American Christians have been truly racist. We have committed actual acts of racial hatred, and that is not unconnected from this strife. So um, what I think is uh, chattel slavery, Jim Crow laws, uh, things that were actual widespread acts of institutional racial hatred in the United States opened up this wound and this CRT and white privilege um, this is infecting and inflaming an existing yeah. wound. It ain't going to heal it. It's going it, to make it worse. Right, right. Um, and then second log and spec I've seen in the American church, many of us who are in the young, restless, and reformed tribe, many of us in the hip, young Calvinist tribe who heard the seashell sermon and thought that we just <laughs> needed to, um, you know, start start our, our little church in the inner city. We have inflamed this sense of guilt and shame that makes actual relationships between real black and white Christians less fruitful. Mm. So uh, those are two logs and specs. Um, any, anything you want to end on a note of hope before uh, I'll, I'll give mine and send us off? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, my note of hope is just that what we have the tools given to us in the gospel to, to be able to uh, address our sin and to be able to forgive one another to confront one another, to grow together. Um, critical theory and the idea of white privilege, this, this is a blight on mm-hmm. uh, a, a pristine, the word of God. And, it, and because it comes from a world that is a, it's a part of the white privilege, critical theory mindset is that if you even speak to something, if you, if you even speak to an issue from a, it's like your your white privilege is speaking. Yeah. So it's like your even the words that you say is tainted, and so what a lot of Christians who who hear this, they they have this guilty mindset that well I can't even speak about it because if I speak about it I'm speaking for my position of privilege and I need to check my privilege and stop exercising it which means I need to shut up and stop talking and let the black people talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that does is that just that that has a silencing effect because. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are the priesthood of believers, and we have a voice. We have something to say, and as in as much as we are speaking truth that is congruent with Scripture, we have we have the right to say it, and we should say it. What critical theory does, what white privilege, this mindset does, is it just it poisons the well and it twists Scripture to where we don't even. We're not, we're not able to speak truth anymore, and it blinds us to reality. So the hope that I would offer is that we have, on your smartphone, sitting on your coffee table, yeah. you have the living, breathing Word of God. Amen. Uh, it is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, so preach it. Use it. And, and trust the, the wisdom of Scripture, and don't let anybody bully you or guilt you or, or bait you into into feeling as though your skin color. I'm, I'm assuming I'm, I'm speaking to white people right now. That your skin color is is a blight. That there is some extra imputed mm-hmm. guilt that is ascribed to you because of your skin color. Um, and I would say for listeners who are um, you know black folks, you know Hispanics, whatever Asians. I mean I, any people of other races other than white. There's. It's like, please, like you also are. Your voices are needed because there is a there is an uh, an assumed authority from uh, you know, like in our culture, 
It's like there's an assumed position of authority with from people of color, mm-hmm. as they're called. Um, so you can leverage that to to the advantage of the gospel by 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 saying the same things, by speaking the truth of Scripture, and um, even even just saying like, hey, like my my right to speak of this is from the Word of God, and not because I'm a person of color or something right. like that. Like, how, just you you can help to dismantle this system at least in people's minds within the body of Christ. Um, that's my word. Praise God. Uh, I just to everybody who's so. If you're black, if you're white, if you're Asian, if you're Hispanic, you were handmade by God. You were knit together in your mother's womb by God. And he has invested you with all of this significance as a son or a daughter of God. That's where your meaning comes from. It does not come from because you fit into some race, some racial quadrant that CRT and our our modern uh, crazy ethos has has created. You matter because God made you in his image. So rest in that. And if you know Jesus Christ then you are his son or daughter eternally. You will have a seat at the wedding feast that comes when he returns. Don't let anybody try to weigh you down with some guilt or some sense of shame for something that they can't actually name. And if you don't yet know him, turn to him in faith and he will reconcile you to himself and to all his other adopted sons or daughters. Saints, go in peace.